our gracious and very patient Heavenly Father. Lord, here we are gathered as saints in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, here on the Lord's Day. Lord, we call upon your name, you who are the defender of the weak, you who are the friend of the stranger and the outcast. You are the one who is the companion to the orphan and the widow, the one who vindicates those who are oppressed, Lord. We call upon your name that you would come and be with us here in a special way this morning, Lord. We think of our pastor Seth, Lord, who is home. I pray that you'd lay your hand upon him, his left side, Lord, that hernia would continue to heal, Lord, that we would see him here next week to minister the word to us again, Lord. I pray that you'd encourage his soul this morning. Think of the rest of our brothers and sisters in this congregation and the things that we are going through, the things we are facing. Think of Sarah and Vicki, Lord, mourning the loss of our beloved brother Greg. I pray that you would comfort their souls this morning, Lord, and each day going forward, Lord. I pray that you would help them, Lord, that you would draw near to them, that you would be their portion, Lord, that they would not mourn without hope, Lord, but they would even be filled with joy for the hope they have that Greg is with you, Lord, and that he is there waiting in glory, awaiting the resurrection of the body, and that we will see him again in the flesh, standing on this earth with us, Lord. I pray that you would give us hope and faith in the resurrection from the dead, which Jesus Christ has promised. He is the first fruits. And he has shown us the pattern to which we're going to follow one day. Lord, I pray that you would help me preach this word, Lord, today. I can do nothing apart from you, Lord. And this will utterly fall flat unless your spirit attends it, Lord. So I pray for your help. I pray that you deliver us from distractions this morning. Those who are hoping to hear from Pastor Seth, Lord, please deliver us from disappointment, Lord. I pray that you would just give us grace to hear the word today, no matter who is the one speaking. If it is you speaking through that vessel, Lord, it is a blessing nonetheless. Lord, I pray that you'd help us now and incline our hearts to your testimonies and not toward selfish gain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the psalm we're going to be reading today and that I'm going to be preaching on is Psalm 43. So if you turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the 43rd Psalm, when you get there, you can follow me as I read from verse 1. We're doing all five verses. So Psalm 43. Starting in verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. Amen. Well, it has been said that the book of Psalms was written to instruct God's people and how to experience the abundant life for which God had created them and redeemed them. 
And this is true of the 43rd Psalm here. The Psalm, as you can see in your Bibles, does not have an official author. Some people believe it was King David during the time of Absalom's rebellion. Some people believe it was one of the sons of Korah. I tend to lean towards believing this was written by one of the sons of Korah because the prior Psalm, which was written by one of the sons of Korah, is very similar in nature to this. But no matter who you take the author of this psalm to be, more importance is what is the genre of this psalm. So psalms in general are poetry. Many of you, many of you know that. But there are three subgenres which fall within this poetry genre of the psalms, and they are songs of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, and psalms or hymns. And this psalm, Psalm 43, is a lament psalm. And any of you who are familiar with the Psalms, who have read them in your morning devotions, who pray through them, would not be surprised to know that the songs of lament are more numerous than all the rest of the types of Psalms in this book. So this is a lament Psalm. But why should we be concerned with genre? Why is that important? Well, Old Testament scholar Mark Futato has this to say. Genre gives us a window into a Christological reading of the Psalms. When the hymns praise God as our creator, redeemer, they're speaking of Christ, who is the creator of all and redeemer of all. When the laments ask, why have you forsaken me? We hear the words of our great high priest. And when they offer up prayers and pleas with loud cries and tears, they point to Jesus because the father answered the agonizing prayers of the son. We know that he will answer our prayers in due time. And in the praise of thanksgiving, we hear the leader of the band, end quote, who is Jesus. So that's very nice, but perhaps you're asking yourself, so what? Is that just Mark Fittato's opinion? That's, That's a nicety. We'd like to see Jesus in these things, but do we have a warrant to read the Psalms in such a way? Should we read the Psalms in a Christological manner? Does the Bible give us any evidence that we should be reading these things, looking for Jesus as the center of the book of Psalms? Well, I believe we do. And it comes from the mouth of the Son of God himself, Jesus. After he was risen from the dead, in Luke 24, as he was speaking to some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said these words, quote, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. This is very important here in verse 46, this word thus in your English Bibles. When it says, thus it is written, in the beginning of verse 46, this word translated as thus is the Greek word hutos. It's a comparative conjunction, and that's important because more literally it should be translated as in this way or in this manner the scriptures are written. So a better translation might be this. In this way, scripture is written that Christ was to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus is giving us here how we should interpret the Old Testament. He says the law, Psalms, and Prophets, which is just a Jewish way of saying the whole Old Testament canon, is all written concerning me. And in this way, in this manner, the Old Testament is written that Christ should die and rise again on the third day. 
The whole Old Testament is about Christ's death and resurrection. That's the main theme of the whole Old Testament. And if we want to obey the words of Jesus, we need to read the Old Testament in that way. So if that's true of the genre, the Lament Psalm, and the theme of the psalm being Christ the center, what is the structure of this psalm before we get into it so we can understand it? Well, what is true of individual Lament Psalms is also true of the book of Psalms as a whole. And this is that they move from the negative to the positive, from cries of help to songs of deliverance, from suffering to glory. That's the full flow of the book of Psalms. It begins with more lamenting, and near the end, the last 10 or 20 or so are all just songs of hymns and praise of thanksgiving to God. And that is what's true of this psalm. It begins with the negative, it moves to the positive, the suffering to the glory. And Christ being the center of the book of Psalms, do we not see that same progression in his life? We see this as Christ was still talking to those same disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Christ's sufferings and his subsequent glory. That is the theme of the Old Testament, and that is the pattern he follows in his life, just like the book of Psalms is. So, with these interpretive principles in mind, the correct genre of the psalm, the theme of the psalm, and the structure of the psalm, we will now begin to unpack Psalm 43. We'll do this in two heads. The first section, or point number one if you're taking notes, is the suffering section, or the negative section. The second head, or point number two, is the section of glory, or the positive section. So beginning point number one, the suffering section of the psalm. The first two verses are the complaint, the negative element, the suffering. We read in verse one, Vindicate me, O God. Plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Verse two, For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Here we have the divinely inspired psalmist speaking by the Spirit of Christ, which Peter says in his epistle. He's surrounded by enemies, as it were. He lives in an ungodly nation and is under the threat of oppression from deceitful and unjust people. In verse 1, he cries out for vindication. His cause is righteous and he is godly. And he wants us to be proven and established before the eyes of his countrymen. But he does not try vindicating himself, as we see. His response to this oppression is to cry out to God for that vindication. And he declares in verse 2 that God is his strength. You see here we have an example of humility. When we are surrounded by enemies, when we feel the oppression of deceitful and unjust people, when we believe that we are in an ungodly nation, our first response, like the psalmist, should not try to trust in the sheer power of our own will to vindicate us or to deliver us from the situation, is to drop on our knees and call out to God, who is your strength, for vindication and deliverance. This is the first step. And the rest of scriptures bear this principle out. The idea of our strength being in the Lord, and the idea that we need to seek humility. For we have no power in ourselves to deliver ourselves. Take, for example, the prophet Zechariah. He says, not by power, nor by might, but by my, thy spirit, says the Lord. Jesus says this, the flesh can profit nothing. John the Baptist says, a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. 
And again, Jesus says these words in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. These are the principles we understand through the scriptures. And speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, do we not see this in his life, this very principle that we see in verses 1 and 2? Do we not see that this psalm is ultimately about him? He was in the midst of a crooked and unjust nation, a perverse nation. The Jews sought to trap him in his words. They tried to discredit all that he was doing and saying, and they even plotted to kill him. And this all came to a head when the crowd before Pilate was riled up to say, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Jesus really was the one surrounded by enemies. He was the one in the midst of an ungodly nation. But what do we see in Jesus' life? He often arose early in the morning, went to a desolate place to pray, to receive power and strength for the daily onslaught of the enemy. Jesus is the pattern. Moving on to verse 2. The psalmist ends this section by saying, Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist is perplexed. Why, Lord, do you not act? Why must I continue in this state? Why do my enemies prevail? He wants a speedy reply from the Lord. He is a true worshiper of God. He's one of the covenant members of Israel. Why is God allowing the ungodly to cause him problems? Well, again, the rest of Scripture gives us the answer to this. We see this principle throughout all the Scriptures. The Lord tries our faith through tribulation and trials and afflictions. The Lord is testing us. The Lord is doing something in these afflictions. They're not random. They're not meaningless. So the Lord is testing the psalmist's faith through this trial. And we see this in verses like Job 23.10. Job says this, He knows the way that I take. When he, tries, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Psalm 66.10 says this, Oh, for you, O Lord, have proved us. You have tried us as silver is tried. So the Lord is testing us in the furnaces of affliction. When there is problems, when there is afflictions, when there is oppression from the enemy, when the Lord seems far off, He's not answering our prayers. We've dropped to our knees. We've called out for the Lord for vindication. And there is a lag of time of response. Our response should be to realize the Lord is testing us. The Lord is doing something in this. And He has purposes in it beyond what we can see. And therefore, in these times of afflictions, our response should not be to take vengeance ourselves, to try to vindicate ourselves. For the rest of scriptures bear this out. Paul says this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The apostle Peter, Peter says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful Creator. That is the principle in response to this negative section of the Psalms. And if you're following along with me, if you're reading this Psalm in a Christological way, do we not see this is also true and fulfilled in the life of Christ? This godly response. We see this of Christ who, and the author of Hebrews says, who in the days of his flesh, according to his human nature, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. This is how Jesus responded. He was surrounded by enemies and he cried out to the Lord. He cried out to his Father for vindication and help. And the Lord answered him. 
So I want this principle to be taken home with you today. The Psalms are only true of us insofar as we are in Christ, who they're ultimately about. Many people who read the Psalms can read it, oh, I, I'm reading a Psalm about David. I'm just like David. I'm just like that. We are missing the point. They are all fulfilled in Christ, and they're only true of us insofar as we are in Christ. And that's how we derive the principles from them. And then we look to him as the example of how we live those out. So this leads to the second part of the psalm, the glory section. So this is the suffering, and we move now to the pivot, to the positive, to the glory. So heading number two, beginning at verse three. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Verse three is the pivot of the psalm. The psalmist entrusts his soul to God and leaves it to God to work out the justice. In essence, he is saying, Lord, I leave my complaint and my troubles with you. I know you will work them out. Just lead me to you. Guide me to your presence that I might worship you for that is ultimately what I need the most. Send out your light and truth. Let them guide me to your holy hill. And the rest of scriptures continue to verify this point. Psalm 119 says, The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 36.9 says, For with you is the fountain of light. In your light do we see light. So what is the psalmist asking for here? He's crying out for light and truth to be sent from the presence of the Lord to lead him. Well, I think these verses, which I just quoted, establish, and other verses also do as well, that this light is God's revelation, his word, the light of the word, and the illumination which the Spirit gives us, who guides us in wisdom and truth. So the psalmist is praying for the illuminating light of God's word and his spirit to guide him into the presence of the Lord. And all this light and truth in the Lord ultimately aims to bring us into his presence. That's, that's the end goal of this, is to bring us into God's presence. And that is the reason for the call for light and truth. And this is what we see in the second half of verse 3. Look at it in your Bibles there. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. So the light and truth is asked for and sent forth so that we might be brought to his holy hill and his tabernacle. What is that? What is the holy hill of the Lord? Some of you may be familiar with this. Hills or mountains in scriptures are normally represented as the meeting places between God and his people. The mountains of the Lord, the hill of the Lord. We see this in uh, Mount Sinai. God comes down and gives the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. That's the meeting place between God and the people of Israel. We see this in Mount Zion, right? That's the name for Jerusalem and Mount Moriah where the temple was built. It is the meeting place. It is God's mountain where God communes with his people with his special temple presence. It is the Mount of Assembly. This is the designated place where God dwells with his people. It is essentially the place of public worship. And now why is that important? Well, We right now, brothers and sisters, in this room, on this day, what we're doing now, we are the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament type. We are right now a part of the Mount of Assembly. Christ, who is the chief cornerstone of the temple of God, and we, as bricks being built on top of him, are making a dwelling place, a holy dwelling place for the Lord. Christ's special presence is here with us right now. 
It says in the book of Revelation that Jesus, the ascended Christ, is walking amongst the lampstands, the candlesticks, which represent the seven churches of Asia. Jesus' presence is manifested here in a special way that it's not in other days. When God's people gather together as saints who have been called by his name, we are now the Mount of Assembly. We are part of a worldwide Mount of Assembly where God comes to commune with us. And we come into his presence with shouts with joyful singing, with prayers, with offering incense and thanksgiving of our lips and praise and giving of Him. And this is important because when the children of Israel would prepare to come up to the Mount of Assembly, they would sing and recite to each other songs of ascent as they would climb up the steps to go to the Mount of Assembly, to Jerusalem. And these are the psalms you'll see near the end of the book of Psalms. They're called Songs of Ascent. And what that was meant to do is to prepare the hearts of the people as they were ascending the steps, as they were flowing and streaming up the mountain to the mountain of God to worship God. It was to prepare their hearts. So brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you, when you come into this place, prepare your heart. Read the Psalms of Ascent. Realize that you are living a New Testament fulfillment of those Old Testament types. We are streaming up together, going hand in hand, as it were, coming into the presence of the Lord and worshiping Him on His Mount of Assembly. And that is a great privilege and honor that you and I, Gentiles, unclean Gentiles, for most of the Old Covenant is mentioned there, we are now made clean and brought near by the blood of Christ. Now we get to be in the Mount of Assembly with God and His people. That is an unspeakable privilege that we have. And brothers and sisters, if we come in here, it's rote ritual, humdum, just coming in here like it's just one other day of the week. We are missing a glorious reality that is being fulfilled in our presence. This is the Mount of Assembly right now, right here. We are offering up to God prayers and spiritual offerings and sacrifices. And if that be true, and I, I hope you see that, there is another application here. There is an eschatological application to the fact that we are the Mount of Assembly right now. The Hebrew word for the Mount of Assembly is Har Megiddo. Har meaning mountain in Hebrew, and Megiddo is the assembly. So we are Har Megiddo. We are the Mount of Assembly right now. That word Har Megiddo in the Greek New Testament in the book of Revelation is translated as Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation is not a battle of tanks and fighter jets attacking a small piece of land in the Middle East. The battle of Har Megiddo, Armageddon, is the battle of the Mount of Assembly, where the worldwide forces of Satan come against the worldwide assembly of God's people. That is what that is representing. God's assembly, the Mount of Assembly, which we are now, that is what that battle is about. I don't have time to go into the obvious uh, questions and uh, things that come from that, but take that point in mind. Har Megiddo, Mount of Assembly, we are the Mount of Assembly now. And we see the fact that this holy hill is the place of public worship more clearly in the next verse. Look with me at Luke, uh, verse 4. Chapter 43, verse 4. The psalmist continues. He says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. So at this place, this hill of the Lord, this tabernacle, there's the altar. There's a place of worship. This place of sacrifice and atonement where God reconciles his sinful people to himself through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In this place there is worship, there is great joy in singing in the presence of the Lord who the psalmist calls his exceeding joy. 
and God, my God, this is the place of public worship. This is what we're doing here. We are declaring that God is our exceeding joy and we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth and in the splendor of holiness. So to the true, to the true child of God, God truly is their everything. God is your exceeding joy. For those who are born again here that I'm speaking to, those who are Christians, who are united to the Lord in faith, you can tell me and you can uh, articulate to me the fact that you have had experiences with the Lord. He truly is your exceeding joy. He is your ultimate joy. He is your everything. So you can say with the psalmist, God is my exceeding joy. He is my ultimate good and glory and pleasure. Another psalmist says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth I desire besides you. That is the cry of the heart of the true born-again believer. There is none I desire in heaven and earth but you, O Lord. So we not see the flow of this psalm so far. I, I hope you're seeing the practical application here. When we are troubled, beginning in verse 1 and 2, and under assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, our first thing should be to drop to our knees and petition the Lord for strength and deliverance. We should entrust our souls to him, though we don't know why things are happening as they are. We should cry out for his light and his truth. We should seek his word and the guidance of his spirit. And these should ultimately lead us into God's special presence in Christ and to the assembly of the saints on the Lord's day, where in public and private worship we personally commune with the Lord and are edified by the means of grace, like the preaching, reading, singing, and hearing of God's word, fellowship with the saints, prayer, and the Lord's supper. That is what the light and truth is driving you to when you're calling out to the Lord. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me to your holy hill. Let, me, let them lead me to your special presence. Let them lead me into the people of God. That is what it's driving you to. Now, obviously, we have good times with the Lord privately, and it's not saying you shouldn't seek the Lord to be edified with the Lord in a private way. But what this psalm is saying is this man's hope is calling out to God to lead him into the assembly of God's people. That is where he praises his God on the harp, where he has the altar there, where he's reminded of the fact that there's sacrifice and there's forgiveness with the Lord. That is what we need the most. So if you are calling out to the Lord, send out your light and truth, those things should lead you to this place here and what we're doing right now. That's where you're edified. That's where, that's where the Lord is going to be there in a special way and where you can rejoice in him in a special way. And again, looking at this Christologically, do we not see this, do we not see this principle of, is true of the one whom is called the light that enlightens every man that comes into the world? Jesus is a 12-year-old in the temple. His parents are looking for him. What does he say to them as they find him? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? As an adult, Jesus cleanses the temple twice and he's eaten up with the zeal for the house of the Lord. In Luke 19, it says, And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, he began to drive out those who bought and sold, saying, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. All this is true of him. All this is true of him, whom would become the lamb, the priest, and the temple. This is all about Jesus. This psalm finds its fulfillment in him, the true son of God. Oh, send out your light and truth. Let them lead me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you. Oh God, my God. Well, this brings us to the final verse. Final section of point two, verse five. Read with me here. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope 
in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. In light of all that the psalmist has said so far, the response to his spiritual depression is to address himself, question himself, and preach to himself. And that is what you and I are to do as well. In light of all that we're seeing so far, that we cry out to the Lord for vindication, He is our strength. He sends out His light and His truth, His word and His spirit. He leads us into His special temple presence on the Lord's day with His people. And we're rejoicing in Him. What are we then to do when we deal with spiritual depression? You speak to yourself. You address yourself. You begin to speak to your soul and encourage yourselves in the truths of the Lord that He has just shown us and the things that He has done in your life. This is in something that we cannot go without. But what exactly are we to preach to ourselves? What do we tell to our souls when we are in spiritual depression? Well, if you look at the second half of verse 5, the psalmist exhorts his soul to hope in God. So what does that look like to hope in God? How do you preach to yourself to hope in God? Well, John Gill has a helpful comment on this verse saying, what are we hoping for? Well, we're hoping for the pardon of sin, for which there is good ground of hope. And there's no reason to be cast down on account of it. We're hoping for strength against Satan's temptations, which is to be had in Christ, as well as righteousness and for the appearance of God and the discoveries of his love. Who has his set time to favor his people, therefore to be hoped and quietly waited for? Hope is of great use against casting down. It is a helmet, a lifting of the head, which keeps it upright and from bowing down. It is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, and is of great service in the troubles of life and against the fears of death. End quote. The hope that the scriptures give us in Christ, the hope that we see that in the light of the word, in the light of the spirit, is what is to encourage our souls in time of spiritual depression, where you question yourself, you speak the word of God to yourself, and you do just like Jesus did when he was facing temptations. He spoke the word to Satan and, Satan and routed him in open combat. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. Jesus is our pattern in the fulfillment of these things. He spoke the word of God and encouraged his own soul and made Satan flee from him. And he bound the strong man and plundered his house with that method. Memorizing scripture, preaching to yourself, clinging to the hope that you have in God. Here's some examples for you. You're dealing with doubt. You're dealing with the oppression of the enemy. You're dealing with spiritual depression. Quoting Romans 8.32 to yourself. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us how all, how shall not he with him freely give us all things? These truths that you speak to yourself. We see this in church history. We sing this hymn sometimes by Charles Wesley. It's literally him addressing his own soul and telling us to do the same thing. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. This is a spiritual discipline that sorely many of us lack. I struggle with myself. We allow our thoughts to dominate. We spiral. We get into depression. And not once do we take a hold of ourselves, pull ourselves up, and begin to address ourselves with, what do I know? What do I believe? What does the Word of God say? And begin addressing your own soul with that. That is what the psalmist is exhorting us to do and we see throughout the rest of the psalms. One more for you. I think this is the best example in the book of Psalms of speaking and preaching and ministering to your own soul. Psalm 103, it literally says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalmist is speaking to his soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, perhaps some of you this morning listening to this message and it's rather strange to you. You don't understand what I'm saying. You've heard strange things this day. You've you've not come to know Christ in this way. You've You've not repented of the sins in your life and entrusted your soul to a faithful creator and redeemer. And all of these applications and all that I'm saying is just foreign language and babble to you. Well, I don't, I'm not surprised by that. This food so far has been for the children. And the soul that has not trusted in Christ this morning has warrant to be depressed and anxious. Why is that? Well, you are a part of the ungodly nation. You are the deceitful and unjust man. You are the one who's broken the commandments of the Lord. You are the one who, like the rest of us, was born in sin, and our first father, Adam, who has fallen. And instead of loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, you've hated God, and you've hated your neighbor. And instead of a joyful being brought into God's kingdom at your death, all that you have to look for after death is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fire that will devour the enemies. This is bad news for you this morning. Not good. But the hope that we proclaim here every Sunday, week in and week out, is that there is good news for you who are in that state, who are a part of the ungodly nation, who are the unjust and deceitful man. The fact is, that in Revelation 22:17, a free gift is offered to you this morning. Let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Are you thirsty this morning? Does this life and all that it promises you leave you dry, empty, and hopeless? Did the vain and empty promises of this world leave you dry and parched? Does the constant chasing after money, pleasure, power, and fame leave you empty and depressed and with a sense of meaninglessness? For many years, I felt that same way. For many, many, many years, I felt that same way. But the hope of the gospel is this, that the free grace of God in Jesus Christ can deliver you from those things, cleanse you from your unrighteousness, and bring you into this covenant community of God. Listen to the call from Isaiah, chapter 55, 11. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This train is bound for glory and it is a free train. It is a free train. We ride it in Jesus' name. And you can come and be a part of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in Him. For Jesus Himself has said, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. He says this in John 7 as well. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
You will have that promise of the Holy Spirit within you and you will not thirst ever again. That is the hope of those, all those who come to Christ Jesus in faith. And trust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And from thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. Come to Christ and live. Come into the kingdom of Christ. Find joy and peace and union with the Lord. And you will be saved. That is the call to you, and that is the application of this psalm to you this morning. It's not to try and work out these principles. It's to come to Christ and be born again. But to those of us here who are Christians, who do know something of this union with the Lord, I want to leave you with three applications and three recaps to this psalm here. I've been trying to go over them in the psalm, in the sermon here, but just leaving you with these. Number one, we have the need to entrust our souls and our cause to God in desperate yet faith-filled prayer when we're under duress. If when you are feeling the oppression of the enemy and surrounded by those around you that are oppressing your soul under affliction, if your first knee-jerk reaction is to go to your chair or go to your friends and try to work up a solution to these things and out of your own power how to deliver yourself, you've gone on the wrong road. The very first knee-jerk reaction of all of us should be to hit our knees to the floor and pray to the Lord for deliverance. That should be the very first step before we do anything else, falling on our knees. Lord, please vindicate me. Please, O oh God, my strength, be with me. Deliver me from the unjust and deceitful man. That is our first application. Don't try and figure this out of your own power. Don't go to your computer, your armchair, wherever you go to think through your problems and three hours later you're no better off than when you started. Is hitting your knees and praying to the Lord and declaring your dependence upon Him. Number two, we have to have the dependence on the Word and the Spirit which would drive us into the special presence of God among His people whereby we may receive grace. The exact opposite of this is to isolate yourself. Many of us in times of trouble have an inclination to go and isolate ourselves. We don't want to be around other people. We don't want to gather with the people of God. We're just going to go figure this out on our own. We isolate ourselves in our depression. That is not what the psalm is saying. The light and the truth of the Lord that you are asking for is to lead us to his holy hill, to this place. So when you are feeling depressed, overwhelmed by the enemy, and you're crying out to the Lord, let him lead you here. You should be here with us on the Lord's day. This is where you will be more encouraged. This is where you'll be edified and strengthened. And I can attest to you that I've had many times in my life where I'd rather not be here because of the things I'm going through. And when I'm here, I am blessed beyond measure and I leave clicking my heels. Because the Lord had a special appointment for me that day and he ministered to my soul in a way he wouldn't have unless I was here amongst the people of God. Do not isolate yourself. Come into the presence of God with the people of God and find a blessing. And number three, final point here, we need to be exhorted to learn how to preach to our own souls, to exhort our own selves to hope in God and promises and the trust in the promises and His salvation. This is something we need to practice. And here's a question for you. How can you preach to yourself if you don't have a text to preach from? How can you exhort yourself to hope in a promise of God that you don't know? This is where memorizing the scripture is so incredibly crucial. And I know this point is harped on a lot. 
oh yes, I know I need to memorize the scriptures now. But no, you do. Because in these moments, if you've got scripture in your soul and in your mind, you are able to preach to yourself texts that are readily available to you. And this is where I would highly recommend the resource fighter verses. Verses that are basically organized in a way to help you deal with certain situations in your life. You can memorize them, have them ready at hand to speak to, the, to Satan who tempts you. Speak to the oppression of your own soul. And to be like the Lord Jesus Christ who used the word of God as a weapon against the wiles of the devil. This is something we have to learn to do is to preach to ourselves. and To address our own souls and to tell them what the truth is and not trust in how we feel. So these are the exhortations that we have. And we also look fully in all these things to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived these things out perfectly for us, who died for us, who rose again, and who gives us the grace to do them. So let us continue on looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this psalm, Psalm 43. And I pray even now, Lord, that you would vindicate us as we are in the midst of an ungodly nation as we speak, Lord, we are surrounded by unjust and deceitful men. Lord, you are the God of our strength, and I pray that you would send out your light and your truth to each soul in this room, Lord, and that it would drive us into greater communion with you, Lord. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind in this room, and you would remove the hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh, Lord. I pray that we would strengthen ourselves in you, Lord Jesus, and that you would give us grace to address ourselves with the sweet promises and word that you have given us. Lord, you have given us a great deposit. We have the word, Old and New Testament, in English. We have the ability to read it, Lord. Thank you for this great privilege and honor, Lord. Help us to honor this day more fully and to rejoice in you with more full hope and joy. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Your benediction this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Laying aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, fainting, in heart. You are dismissed.